If you have a Bible, we're back in Mark chapter 9. So we're going to be down off the mountain tonight. So now let's pray. Father, we come before you, Lord, and, and I just ask, Lord, that you'll magnify your word. And through that, I just ask you'll magnify the Lord Jesus Christ through what we speak tonight. And I ask you to do that in Jesus' name. All right, so we have Mark chapter 9, and we're going to read from verses 14 down to verse 29. And we begin in verse 14, and it says, And when he, Jesus, came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them, and the scribes questioning with them. And straightway all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed, and running to him, saluted him. And he asked the scribes, What question ye with them? And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto you my son, which has a dumb spirit. And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth and gnasheth with his teeth, and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. And he answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. And they brought him unto him, and when he saw him, straightway immediately the spirit tear him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming. And he asked his father, How long is it? ago since this came into him, and he said of a child, and oft times it has cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said unto him, If you can believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I do believe. Help thou mine unbelief. And when Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried and rent him sore and came out of him, and he was as one dead, insomuch that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he was come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, well, why could we not cast him out? And he said unto them, Well, this kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and by fasting. So there's a rather famous picture that was done by a 16th century Italian painter named Raphael. And what he did is he took the transfiguration and this scene of the boy here and painted a picture of it. And the top half of the painting, if you look at it, is a picture of the transfiguration, and it's all light. You know, of course, Jesus was lit up, and it's all light, full of light. It shows Jesus, actually has him in the air, and on either side of him, his Moses and Elijah, and down on the ground, you see Peter, James, and John in fear at what they're seeing. And the bottom half of the picture, though, when you look at it, it's dark and chaotic, and it's the scene that's going on down at the foot of the mountain while he's being transfigured. So it pictures, it shows the nine disciples are there. It shows the epileptic boy. It shows the epileptic boy, his father and his mother, and the rest of the crowd, including the scribes arguing with the disciples. And when you look at this picture, I believe the painter captured in the faces of those that were below the mountain the ones in the dark and chaotic scene. I believe he captured what was going on. So he shows the disciples being a mixture of emotions. Two of them have angry looks on their faces. Two of them look discouraged, like, why didn't this work? 
Two of them are pointing up to the mountain like that's where Jesus is. That's where our help's going to come from. Two of them are pointing that way. One, it shows him he's looking at a book. Like it's like we didn't quite follow the instructions right, and that's why it didn't work. That's, what, that's what's in that picture. Didn't know what steps they missed. And three of them look like we just want to help you. They're, they're facing the father and the mother, and they look like they just want to help. The boy has got his eyes wide open, and he looks very distressed. And the father is also wide-eyed, and he's got this confused, helpless look on his face. And the mother just has this look like a pleading look. Can't you just help us out? Now, we don't know that the mother was there, but I imagine that she probably was. And in the, in the crowd, what he has of the crowd, you can see the scribes there self-righteously condemning the nine that it didn't work out. And then you have one person in the crowd, he's got his hand up like this, like, why couldn't you guys make this work? And that's what you see when you look at that picture. And that's the picture that Mark is painting here with words. As you read these gospel accounts, I think you need to let your mind paint pictures of what's going on. That's how you're going to remember and that's how you're going to learn. I'm saying I'm not big on pictures of Jesus, but you can see this picture online, this picture of Raphael. It's a very famous picture. I believe it's at the Sistine Chapel now. It's an interesting picture, especially to look at what he's done with the crowd below. It's kind of a vivid picture. But this same account that we read here of this epileptic boy is also found in Matthew and Luke. But is what's typical of Mark, like I said, even though he's got a shorter gospel, he uses twice as many words, over twice as many words to describe the scene. So there again, it's like a firsthand account. And since Mark was traveling with Peter and hearing everything Peter said, he includes way more details than the other two gospel writers. And I think the reason that he does, because he goes into details about this boy's condition way more than you're going to read about almost anybody else in the New Testament as far as their sickness and how it goes and the conditions they're dealing with. Because what he's trying to do is he's trying to show the seriousness the impossibility, the danger, and the demonic oppression that's evolved in this story and with these people. So we have several examples of men that go up on a mountain, have great experiences with God, and only come down to trouble. So you have Moses goes up on Mount Sinai. He has fellowship with the Lord face to face comes down with his face glowing. And as he's coming down and he picks up Joshua on the way, they're hearing this great sound. And Joshua says what? He goes, buddy, that sounds like war going on down there. And Moses says, no, that's not the sound of war. He said, that's the sound of singing. So he gets down there. He's got to set things straight, doesn't he? He throws down those two tablets. But what does he find? He finds the people have just totally rebelled against what the Lord's asked them to do. They're fornicating. They have new clothes on. They're dancing. They're worshiping this golden calf. And he's got to set things straight. Grinds it, makes them drink it. That's what Moses had to do, intercede for the people because God was ready to wipe them out. Elijah, he's up on Mount Carmel. The fire fell, comes down and shows who the true God is. But when he runs down that mountain and he gets down to the base of the mountain, gets to the city of Jezreel, you know what he does? He runs into trouble too, Mrs. Trouble. You know what Mrs. Trouble's name was? Jezebel. Because what she tells him is, I know what you did to my guys up there, all my prophets. Then none of them have a head left on their shoulder. And I'm going to tell you something, Elijah. By my gods, I swear, if by tomorrow you aren't exactly like them, so be it. It's going to happen that way. And Elijah's like, oh, I don't quite want to have that. I'm not ready to have my head separated yet. So he takes off running. 
And he's so discouraged that God has to take him back up on another mountain to give him another revelation to keep him going, doesn't he? But that's what happens. And here we have the Lord Jesus Christ. He comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration into the Valley of Chaos and Darkness. From the presence of Moses and Elijah to the presence of these dejected disciples, the scribes and this helpless father and this crowd that's confused. He comes from the voice of his loving Heavenly Father. This is my beloved son. Hear him. The encouragement from that. He comes down to that to the voice of arguing unbelief, cries of agony, pleas for help. That's what he comes down to here. Left one to come down to the other. So that's kind of the setup of what we have here. Comes down to this crowd. And there's five observations that I want to make tonight and applications from this account, this story that we've read. I'll give them to you now and then I'll give them as we go along. The first one I want to look at is that the presence of Jesus and the Spirit of God brings peace and unity. And the second thing is the devil seeks to destroy us, all of us. And he also, through that, wants to promote unbelief. The third thing I want to look at is we are to bring our loved ones to the Lord. And the devil may try to hinder that. The fourth thing is we don't need great faith, but we do need to have utter dependence on God. And that's shown by prayer and fasting. And the last thing we'll look at is that we need to see through this account the greatness and majesty of our Lord Jesus Christ. That isn't going to take as long as you might think. I don't think. But that's what we're going to look at tonight. So the first thing we're going to see is that the presence of the Lord and the Spirit of God brings peace and unity. And so look in verses 14 and 15. It says, When he came to his disciples, Jesus, he saw a great multitude about them and the scribes questioning with them. And straightway all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed and running to him, saluted him. And so when you get the sense from this reading that he comes down there, it's a rather chaotic scene, like we already said from that painting. So he sees this great crowd as he's coming down. And right in the middle of that crowd are his nine disciples. And what's going on? He's got the scribes, and they're there arguing, questioning, disputing is what that word means, arguing with them. So they're probably raising the same doubts and questions with the disciples and the crowds that they have all along. Where does this guy, your master, where does he get his authority from? What's this spirit that's operating through him? And if you guys have the same power that he has, how's come nothing's happening here? How's come nothing's going on with this boy? And so they would have taken great delight in discrediting Jesus and the disciples in front of this whole crowd, wouldn't they? That's what they would have. And so here you've got the crowd. This picture, you got the crowd, they're probably confused, wondering where Jesus is. And the disciples, these nine disciples, are probably wondering the same thing. Where is he? So they had to be discouraged, upset. And the fact they couldn't get this spirit out of this boy, when I'm sure they thought they could at first, I'm sure they were highly embarrassed. Wouldn't you think? I'm sure they were highly embarrassed. And the boy's father is dejected. This is what he's all coming down to. He'd asked him, he'd actually didn't ask him, he told them to cast his spirit out of his boy and they couldn't do it. And he's got to be thinking, you mean, I came all the way from my house, brought this boy here, I knew he was going to be delivered because of all the things I heard about the Lord Jesus Christ, and you mean nothing's going to happen? Nothing's going to happen now? And now I've got to take him all the way back home with no hope? Well, I was sure this was going to happen. You got to figure that's the way that boy's father would have been. And here then you have the scribes gleefully rubbing it all in. 
So it's a chaotic scene. I'm picturing it's like when you are in an airport and planes get canceled or delayed. If you've ever been around the crowd and heard what they said, they've got opinions, their criticisms, their cursing, and discontent abounds. And I think that's what you have going on here. And so what do we have? Here's my point. Down into all of this, this pit, if you want to put it that way, walks the Lord of glory. And it says when the people saw him, it says they were greatly amazed and running up to him, saluted him. Now, I don't think he still had some of that glow still on him. I really don't, because he had told the disciples coming down, he goes, don't tell anybody about what happened up there. I think he pretty much just looked normal. But I think there's a certain authority that he had about him that came from the anointing of the Holy Spirit on him. And I think that is what they saw. And when he came in to that situation, he took control of what was going on. What are you talking about with them? He just steps right in there. Ask the scribes, what are you talking about with them? And so before they have an answer, the father interrupts them. And I think they're probably glad. I don't think they wanted to get into it with Jesus. They didn't mind his disciples. They could handle them. But Jesus had already humiliated them many times. That father interrupts him about that. So Jesus, I was trying to think of the word the other day we were talking about this. But I think he had what they like to talk about George Bush. They said he was lacking this. He didn't have any gravitas. Didn't have that thing when you come in around. So they used to, but I think Jesus had that. But what I don't think it was, was I don't think it was this charisma that you would get like with a Hitler or with certain politicians where they just have this certain charisma. No, I don't think it was that way with the Lord Jesus Christ. He wasn't like that. But I think he had, when he came on a scene, a certain power, peace, and purity that demanded respect, that brought order, that brought peace and unity. And I'm saying that is what I believe the presence of the Holy Spirit will do. That's what the Bible teaches. 1 Corinthians 14, 26 says this. How is it then, brethren, when you come together, every one of you has a psalm, has a doctrine, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation, and he says, let all things be done unto edifying. So Paul's saying, hey, when you come together like we do tonight, you all should be praying about, is there something I could share with the body to build it up, to edify the body? And he says, let all things be done. How? When the Holy Spirit's present, how's it supposed to be done? Decently and in order. That's what'll come. You're not going to have a scene like you have at the foot of the mountain when the Holy Spirit's present. He goes on to say that the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets, for God is not the author of what? We know that verse. He's not the author of confusion, but of peace, it says, as in all churches of the saints. God is not the author of confusion. He wasn't the author of all this confusion that was taking place in the base of this mountain. And he's not the author of confusion whenever you have it in a church. He's not. He's the God of peace. So if you would put something there and turn back to James, please. James chapter 3. James 3, verse 13, it says this. It says, Who is a wise man and a dude with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation or lifestyle his works with meekness of wisdom. He says, But if you have bitter envy and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom, he says, descends not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. 
For where envying and strife is, there is what? Confusion and every evil work. So that's what the devil produces. But verse 17 says, but what the wisdom that is from above, from the Holy Spirit, is first what? Pure or holy, then peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, which means reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, means without suspicion, without judging, and without hypocrisy, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. You could teach a whole sermon on that. I've heard a really good sermon on that, actually. But only the devil brings that confusion, disunity, and he's saying the Spirit of God comes, and when he's there, he's first peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated. And I'm saying that's what happens when he comes on the scene. Ephesians 4 says this, I therefore, Paul writes, the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. And he says this in verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So that unity comes from the Spirit of God. And when the Spirit of God comes on the scene, that's what you have. That's when fellowship works in a church, doesn't it? I mean, the times we've had, and we've had some here lately, when the Spirit of God is here and He's present, it's just everything's flowing like it should. And there's just atmosphere, just a feeling of it's not a spirit of unity, but just a unity of the Spirit. And even afterwards, just you leave just feeling like, wow, it was a good service and I enjoyed being with everybody. Amen. And that's the way it works, whether it's at church or when you have fellowship. And that's what I see happening in this account. The presence of God comes on this chaotic situation and brings peace and order and glory to God. Because in Luke's account, after Jesus delivers his boy and returns him to his father, everybody's eyes are on the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says this, we'll talk about this later, it says they were all amazed at the mighty power of God. No more chaos, no more confusion, everything was right. I want to move on to my second observation, back to Mark 9, and that is this, that the devil seeks to destroy our lives and promote unbelief. So look at the words that are used to ascribe the effects of the devil, this unclean spirit on this boy. Look what the father tells Jesus in verse 18. He says this spirit, whenever it gets hold of it and it seizes him, that's the word, it seizes him, it tears him or violently throws him to the ground. It says he foams at the mouth, he grinds his teeth and stiffens up. And when Jesus commands them, he says, I want you to bring that boy to me. He gets a demonstration of all of what that man said to him right here. Look in verse 20. It says, and they brought him unto him. And when he saw him, when that spirit saw the Lord through that boy, it says straightway, immediately, the spirit did what the father said. It tear him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming. And the father tells him in verse 22, he says, oft times, many times, frequently, this is what this spirit does. It cast him into the fire and into the waters. And why is that spirit doing that to that young boy? He wants to destroy him. Wants to destroy him. Have to keep people around him, watch him all the time. Make sure something doesn't happen to him because that unclean spirit in him wants to destroy that boy. So our culture that we're in, especially in America, our culture wants to depict the devil many times as a likable villain. You know, one of the most famous rock songs growing up, 
the Rolling Stones, they got a song, Sympathy for the Devil. That was a big hit, all you old 70 rockers. And they'll make these cartoon characters, they make him a cute little guy with his little tail sticking out and all that and try to make it like it's funny. And the TV programs where he appears, well, he's sly, but they usually have it be some attractive figure. Here in this account, we have a depiction of what the devil is really like. You know what? They talk about all this child abuse they're worried about, but here we see what the devil will do to a little boy, a little helpless boy. Through this, we see what he would do to us, every single one of us. That's what we see here. We see him for how he really is. You know, when I go into prison, I see firsthand that the devil has no love for humanity, not a trace. All made a young man just met one, 22 years old, is in there, is in that jail. And the devil's got him selling meth and doing meth making all kinds of money, thinking he's all right, destroying his body. And here's a guy at 22 years old gets a 20-year prison sentence. Now he's going to spend the best years of his life, 20 years of his life, in prison, wasting away there. That's the way he is. So he has come, as we know, to steal, kill, and to destroy everybody that he can because he hates the image of God in us. And so look at how he's twisted the image of God in this little child, in this little boy. And that's what all sickness does. So he's come to destroy us, and he works hard at it. But 1 John 3 tells us that our Lord was manifested to do what? He's come to destroy us, but it says that the Lord Jesus Christ was came manifested to destroy the works of of the devil. Everything he's working so hard at, Jesus says, uh-uh, I'm going to undo it. That's why I came, to destroy the works of the devil. So listen, we should have no sympathy for the devil. He has no sympathy for us at all. Believe me, no sympathy. You go through a trial, you realize that there is no sympathy there, is there? Not for us, not for our kids, not for anybody. We don't rail on him, do we? Can't do that, but he is still our ancient foe who seeks to work us woe. But it says one little word in that song from our Lord Jesus Christ will fell him. He'll be done. That's all it takes is one little word. The second thing I was saying is he seeks to destroy us, but also through his evil symptoms in the lives of men, like with this little boy here, he seeks to produce unbelief in the faithfulness of God. And that's what we have in verse 18. It says, whenever he takes him, he tears him, foams, he gnashes with his teeth and pines away. He said, and I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. And down in verse 24, it leaves him saying, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. So the fact he is sure that they're going to be able to help him out and they can't, it's messing with him. It's messing with this faith that he had. He's like, I came here with faith. But thy disciples couldn't help me out, and it's growing dim. My faith is growing dim. And doesn't that happen to us many times? We pray, and the child doesn't seem to get any better, or they get worse, or whatever our circumstances are. Sometimes it just seems like it gets worse and not better. And we'll tell ourselves, well, I prayed just like I did in the past. I don't understand why it's not working this time. And then unbelief starts to set in, doesn't it? And listen, unbelief, though, in the Bible is always a sin. It always is. 
So look what he says. Jesus has to say in verse 19. He said unto them, O faithless, and that really that word is unbelieving. O faithless, unbelieving generation. He says, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring that boy to me. Yeah, I mean, he's rebuking the crowd, his disciples included in that whole thing. Hebrews 3.12 says this, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Why is he rebuking them so strongly at this point for their unbelief? Because of all the mighty things that they had seen him do, especially his own disciples. All the things, there's no excuse for their unbelief at this point. Numbers 14, God rebuked Israel for the same reason. Numbers 14, 11, it says this, The Lord said unto Moses, it sounds just like what Jesus said, The Lord said to Moses, How long will this people provoke me? And how long will they not believe in me, despite all of the signs which I have performed in their midst? So God's the same, isn't he? Old Testament and New Testament. That's what Jesus is saying. How long will I be with you? He probably couldn't wait to get back up on that mountain. He probably couldn't wait to get back up in the glory with his father. But here he is. He's still there to help that little boy. And so what's the answer? Well, we'll see that in just a little bit. We'll hold you on here. So the third thing I want to come to, we've looked at two of them. The third thing is that we should bring our loved ones to the Lord. But when we do that, the devil may hinder. So look, we read that in verse 19. Jesus commands them, the Father, to bring that boy to him. And he wants us to do the same thing with our loved ones. He wants us to bring our children, our parents, our friends, just like the four did when they brought their friend that was sick of the palsy. He wants them to bring it to him. And how do we do that? Through our prayers. It's that simple. That is how we bring our children before the Lord. Don't you do that every day? I would hope you do. Pray every day for your children. Lord, keep them. Don't you pray that in the morning? Keep them. Keep them under the blood. Give them tender hearts. Bring them to a true saving knowledge of you. Don't you pray for your kids every day, you guys? I'm sure you do. And we should do that with others in our church. Bring them before the Lord in the same way if we know they're suffering or they're in trials. But what happens... When the father brings this boy to Jesus, it's not like all the problem's over with, isn't it? Because when he brings him to Jesus, excuse the language, but all hell breaks loose. Literally it does. That's what happens. And sometimes when the Spirit of God begins to deal with an individual, that is when the devil will manifest himself in anger. Just like this Spirit does here with this little boy. Brings him down to Jesus and he just starts manifesting and it gets worse as it goes on. So I talked with the prisoner on Saturday. Talked to this guy. Well, I guess he was from eastern Kentucky after he told me his background. He says, well, my mom was Pentecostal and my dad worshipped Odin. Odin. I thought I was a basketball player, but I knew knew he was talking about a spirit. I believe it's a Wiccan spirit. He said, my dad worships Odin. And he said, yeah, he said, well, I really tried Christianity. Tried it twice. He goes, but both times I did that, he said, man, my life just blew up. Things just got worse in my life. He goes, so I thought, well, I'm going to try my dad's side of the religion. So I started worshiping Odin. And he said, basically, things got a lot better. And I'm saying, wait a minute. Put a time out there. (laughs) I said, don't you see what's happening? 
I said, when you start going to Christianity, the devil's just making your life miserable. When you get over into his camp, I'm saying he's leaving you alone. I'm like, you can't have peace. He's like, oh, I've got more peace than I've ever had in my life. I'm like, more peace than you ever had in your life? You got a 25-year sentence. You got tattoos all over your body, and you're spending 40 days in the hole because you're in trouble in prison. More peace, please. <laughs> I told him, I said, listen, I'm not picking on you. I said, listen, that's what happened in my life. I said, when I did drugs, sold drugs like you did, I said, the devil basically left me alone, sort of. I had a demonic peace. I was a troubled young man, but things weren't exploding in my life. But then came a time when God started dealing with me, and I started reading my Bible. I said, I'm going to live for the Lord as best I know how, as a little Catholic boy. That I was going to follow what the Bible said in the Lord Jesus Christ. Next thing you know, all those spirits in me, they were just in there waiting. Bam! They exploded. 17-year-old, I'm in a mental hospital trying to commit suicide. So I get in there and I'm like, wait a minute, you know, before I got into all this Christianity or trying to do it, I was basically okay. So I'm going back to doing my drugs. And guess what? The devil was happy with that. Left me alone until I get off to college and decide, wait a minute here. I'm still, I know I'm going to hell. <laughs> I don't have a piece about that. And decide to get my life right with the Lord again. And it all kicks in again. The devil, that's the way he works. And that'll happen a lot of times, whether it's sickness or salvation, you're praying for somebody and all of a sudden, bam, he makes their life worse. Or maybe you're seeking the Lord in here as a young person and you're like, things are okay for me. I was in my comfort zone, but now that I'm trying to serve the Lord, my life's going upside down. Listen, that's a good sign. And I'll tell you why that's a good sign, because every new birth, ask these women that have just had babies in here, every new birth has some sort of birth pains, some stronger than others. But there is no birth without a struggle. Amen? So I'm saying don't get discouraged if the devil seems to be fighting you, a loved one, or even if you're believing for something and the circumstances seem to get worse. That's the time to press in that God will be faithful to me. So we're on the fourth point, and the fourth point is that it is not great faith that we need, but an utter dependence on God. And so the overriding theme of this story is unbelief. We look at verse 19 and he says, O faithless, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. And then in verses 23 to 24, Jesus says, he said unto him, if you can believe, mister, all things are possible to him that believe. And then immediately the father cries out and says with tears, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. And when you go down to verse 28, in Mark's account, it says, When he was come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast him out? Well, if you look over, which we won't do, if you look over in Matthew's account, before he says that about prayer and fasting, you know what he tells them? He says, Why couldn't you cast him out? He says, Because of your unbelief. For truly I say unto you, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you shall say unto this mountain, remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. And after that, he says, verse 29, that this kind cometh forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. What we need to understand is, so three times in this story, he deals with unbelief. Unbelief, apistos, unbelief. And we have to understand that we have got to have faith if we want to see the power of God manifested in our lives. 
Because here's a hard lesson for people to learn. God doesn't respond to our need. If that was the case, there would never be a sick person or a sick Christian. If that was the case. In Mark 5, the woman with the issue of blood had a great need, didn't she? Twelve years, it says she was hemorrhaging, bleeding. But did Jesus heal her because of her need? She would have been healed way before then. But Jesus told her this. He says, daughter, thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. What made her whole? Her need? No, he said it was her faith that made her whole. And Jairus, after he had heard his daughter had died, what did Jesus say to him? He said, be not afraid, only believe. Because listen, if Jairus would have said, look, Lord, I don't think you ought to waste your time. Jesus wouldn't have gone. He'd have stopped dead in his tracks. He's got to have faith. And Jesus is encouraging him. Look, don't be afraid. They're telling you it's no use. Why trouble you the master anymore? He's like, listen, you just believe. Just keep believing. All things are possible to him that believes. That's what he's saying. Because I'll tell you how I know it's not just a need. In Luke 4, Jesus told them, and when he comes down in the power of the Spirit, he said there's many widows that had needs in Israel. Many of them had needs. But he said Elijah was sent to one that had faith. A Gentile. He was sent to a Gentile. And he said also... And here, Israel, they should have been the ones that have faith, shouldn't they? He said, also, in Israel, there were many lepers in the time of Elisha. Many of them. Many needs. Many people died of leprosy. Many lepers. But he said that Elisha cleansed only one at that time who exercised obedient faith. And who was that? Naaman. And who was Naaman? Another Gentile. A Syrian these guys, I hear them preach all the time. They apologize. You should never tell someone it was a lack of faith that they didn't get healed. Okay, I won't say that. I'll let Jesus say it. He's the one that said all that because when he said that, he got them so stirred up in his own town by implying that the Jewish people didn't have faith when they should have. Got them so stirred up. They were so furious they took him down to a brow of a hill. They were going to throw him down. You're not going to tell us we don't have faith. Well, he did, because he said the two that did, all kinds of needs, but the two that did have faith, they were the ones that were healed. Now, I know there can be other reasons why a healing doesn't take place, but we're talking about unbelief. And what God is telling us here in this story is that it isn't a mountain of faith that we need to move a mustard seed, but he's saying that a little faith will do the impossible. It just has to be faith. And what is faith? Utter dependence on God. Right? We've heard it many times. Forsaking all. I trust you only. And what does that mean, forsaking all? That he's the only source. Wow. So D.L. Moody said this. He says there's three kinds of faith. I like this. He said there's struggling faith, like a man in deep water who's desperately swimming. And he says, there's clinging faith like a man hanging on the side of a boat. There's resting faith like a man safely with the boat and able to reach out and help others to get in. And I think we've all experienced all three kinds of faith throughout our Christian life. But this father here that we're reading about in this account, he's got that struggling faith, doesn't he? He's out there. 
He takes what little bit of faith he has, though, and he's splashing around and he's saying, Lord, I need you to help me. I believe in you. I believe you're going to help me. He's got struggling faith. But the key is he never ceases to look to Jesus for utter dependence upon him to help him in this situation. He's struggling, but he's like, I still know you're my only source. Because if it's not you, I'm going home disappointed. <laughs> That's the key to understanding that. And the Lord Jesus Christ will honor that kind of faith. You got a situation and you're struggling and you want to trust the Lord. Don't give up. Don't let the devil talk you out of it and say you don't have any faith. If you're struggling, maybe you've gone down under the water a few times and you're just barely able to get your head above water. He'll help you. And so the disciples, they come to Jesus and they ask, here's another account. Why couldn't we cast that demon out? And Jesus said, well, it's the same thing. You've got unbelief, but in a different way. Because their lack of faith came as a result of a lack of prayer. Because I think they see this situation taking place here, and they like, man, it was just back a few chapters back. And everything, when he sent us out, we had the authority and power, and every spirit that came our way, we took care of it. We came back happy. Oh, man, we got power. And I think they had to learn something. They had to learn that it's only by dependence on God that they have any power. And that is what prayer is all about, isn't it? So why do we pray? We pray because we've got a situation that's in front of us that we know we can't handle ourselves. We're totally dependent on him. My brother Hampton used to say, I don't pray to brush my teeth in the morning. I really don't. Now, I might if I was going through a trial with my arm. But unbelief won't pray. But faith will, because it knows it's dependent on God. These guys hadn't prayed. They thought they had it in themselves to take care of this situation. And so he's teaching his disciples throughout this whole section we're in in March. He's taking this as a time to teach his disciples. He didn't have to pray when he came to that boy. He was ready to issue that word of command, wasn't he? You know why? What was he doing up on that mountain? Remember, he went up there to pray. He was constantly in communion with his father. Now, we know he fasted 40 days and 40 nights at the beginning of his ministry. I don't know how much he fasted after that. He may have fasted quite a bit, but he's praying on that mountain. And so we learn from the disciples, what are we learning here? What happens when we neglect a life of prayer and fasting? Isn't that what we're learning here? Because we won't have the power when we need it. If we don't do that, because we can't operate in our own power. And one man said this, he says, prayer is faith turned to God. Faith is, or prayer is faith turned to God. Prayer is the focusing and directing of faith in specific requests to God. Both faith and prayer testify that spiritual power is not in oneself, but in God alone. And both Wait and trust upon his promise to save, heal, deliver, supply our needs, or move on our behalf, whatever it is we need. Faith and prayer go hand in hand. And so why does he add prayer and why does he add fasting? And you know, most commentaries, these commentaries I have and a lot of your translations, they're wanting to cut off the fasting part. And I'll tell you, that's a funny thing to me. Because sometimes they'll say, well, the reason we're saying this shouldn't be the what's in the King James, they'll say they have their reasons for it. And sometimes it's sort of reasonable. This is like unreasonable to me because fasting is found in almost all of the old ancient manuscripts. 
I'm like, if it's in almost all of the old ancient manuscripts, why are you so fast to take it out? I really honestly don't understand that. Now, fasting can be a work, can it? It can be a work. It could be like you're trying to earn something from God. Oh, if I do this, he's got to do something. It doesn't work that way. But if fasting is done in the right way, it just shows what we're talking about. What these disciples needed to learn is, God, you're saying, I am just totally dependent on you. I'm helpless without you. And I need your power. And you coming in into this situation and helping me means more. I'm showing you it means more than anything else in my life. More than my iPod, my TV, my sports. More than any of that. More than food of all things. And if you would turn back to Ezra before Nehemiah and after 2 Chronicles. And turn back to Ezra chapter 8. And look what it says. Then I, Ezra, I proclaimed what? A fast there at the river of Ahava that we might afflict ourselves before our God to seek of him a right way for us and for our little ones and for all our substance. So, I mean, there's robbers on the road. It's a major thing. And they're taking their little kids with them. Dangerous journey. He says, verse 22, for I was ashamed to require of the king a band of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy in the way, because we had spoken unto the king, saying, the hand of our God is upon all them for good that seek him, but his power and his wrath is against all them that forsake him. And so look in verse 23, so we fasted and besought our God for this, and what was the result? It says, he was entreated of us. Ezra was facing an impossible situation. In the natural, it was impossible they were going to make that journey and, and not all of them be dead before they got to the end of it. And this situation with this boy is an impossible situation. That's why we have so much detail about the condition he's in. It's a strong spirit that Jesus is dealing with here. And he's saying with cases like this, it's got to be prayer, fasting, and communion with God. It's got to be an acknowledgement that this situation I'm looking at here is way over my head. And I need God to intervene. That's what Ezra was saying. This situation, me taking all these people, all these little kids on this journey, all these hundreds of miles, way over our head. Especially without an army to help us out. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. When Peter and John healed the lame man in Acts 3, they said this, Ye men of Israel... This guy that hadn't walked, he's what, 40 years old? They said, you man of Israel, why are you marveling at this? What's happened here? Or why are you looking so earnestly on us? They said, as though by our own power or by our holiness we had made this man to walk. And Peter and John, they're saying, we know that we don't have any power inherent in us. The only power we have comes through the Holy Spirit. And how is that released? How is that brought into play? Through prayer and fasting, that's what our Lord Jesus is telling us right here, isn't it? And so it's interesting to note, where were they headed when they raised this guy up and put the strength back in his legs? They were headed to pray in the temple. Maybe they were fasting, I don't know. But they learned that lesson from Jesus in Mark 9. And I'm telling you, if we may think we can do things, we can do ministry, we can be busy about talking to people about the Lord, all these ministry things we're doing, and we're wasting our time because hearts can't get changed. There's no anointing on the Word. If God's Spirit isn't in what you're doing, it won't work. 
Now, you may be doing things and feel good about how busy you are, but I'll tell you, this has struck me at different times. I'm standing last week at the back of the chapel service at prison, and the place is packed. And I'm realizing that it was a struggle. The, the men were not responding to the message, and there was nothing wrong with the message. The message was fine. It's just striking me. I'm seeing these people, and I'm seeing some of them more than others, are just filled with unclean spirits permeating that room. And I had to remind myself, you can't just come in here with a message to preach and praying for the 20 minutes it takes you to drive here. That isn't going to work. The devil's not going to sit down for that. So that's whether it's here, it's amongst each other, you're out ministering to some lost person, you have a situation that's going to come up in your family. It's got to be prayer and fasting has got to be in our lives, a part of our lives. And I'm really, I can't go in that chapel service. I can't go when we go into that segregation unit and think I'm going to have a really lasting impact on anybody if I'm not prayed up and fasted up. I'm telling you, I know that for a fact, because that's when I've seen God actually move on these men. And the whole atmosphere of the meeting changes. But what does that mean if you're going to do that? That means you've got to shut some things down to have the time to pray and fast, doesn't it? And do we really take things that seriously? Do we really see that great a need in our lives? Because Jesus says this kind, this kind, he's saying, this strong spirit, the only way that kind is ever going to come out, it's a mountain that needs to be moved. Only way that one's coming out, by nothing, he says. The only way, only by nothing, by prayer and fasting. So that brings me to the last point. And the bottom line is, when we read this account back to Mark 9, I'll tell you the thing in my spirit is, when it's all said and done, the bottom line of this account is that the majesty and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ shines through. It really does. And if you would turn over to Luke 9 to look at this. In Luke chapter 9, it's the same account, it's Luke's account, but Luke gives this ending here. And so we're in Luke 9, and we look in verse 42, and it says this, And as he was yet a coming, the devil threw him down and tear him, and Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the child and delivered him again to his father. In verse 43, And they were all amazed at the mighty power of God. So the devil throws that boy down at Jesus' feet and gives him his worst. Throws the boy down and tears him right in front of Jesus. And at that point, it's looking bad for the father and it's looking bad for the son. It is. That's what we have there in verse 42. He threw him down and tear him. Now the King James goes on to say, and Jesus rebuked. That word for and. It's a word that can be either translated and or but. And I think the context determines the translation. And I think that should be better translated, but Jesus. And that's where our hope comes in. Because that's where it came in for this man and his boy. The devil's in control. Takes that boy and throws him down and tears him and convulses him and he's foaming. But Jesus, if it wasn't for him, where would that boy be? Where would that dad and that boy be? They would have no hope. It says, but Jesus, and that's the way it is for our lives, isn't it? You've got spiritual problems, you need salvation, it better be but Jesus or we're lost. But especially here, but 
Jesus. And what happened with but Jesus? He did three things. He rebuked that unclean spirit. But Jesus, he healed the child. That's what it says right there in the text. But Jesus. And then it says, the Lord Jesus Christ delivered him to his father. He restored that man's home the way it should be. But Jesus can do that. Nobody else could have helped him in that condition. Restored that man's home. The one stronger he talks about than the strong man came. Didn't he say that? You remember that? The strong man's in his house. Somebody needs to come that's bigger than him to bind him. And that's what we have here. And he comes and he sees that boy and that father has enough faith. And he says, this house is mine. He says, I'm taking over. Jesus said, I'm taking over this boy and this house and I'm restoring it back to the way it should be. And he says, this is what's going to happen, Mr. Spirit, in this boy. You're done. You've been tormenting him long enough. He says, thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter no more into him. And that boy was forever delivered, never to be tormented again, ever. Because Jesus commanded it. Jesus brought that restoration, and that's how it works. And when the people saw that, it says this, they were all amazed at the mighty power of God. The mighty power of God. The NAU says they were amazed at the greatness of God. And the New King James said they were all amazed at the majesty of God. The mighty power, the greatness, the majesty of God. So they hadn't seen that. It was on display up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Those people weren't up there. The crowd, they didn't see that take place up there. But they saw that being brought down into the pits of life. And there it was demonstrated, brought deliverance to that boy. And the people, they saw the glory of God through the Lord Jesus Christ in his face right there. That boy being set free. And that's what we need to see in our mind's eye, in our heart. The glory of Jesus Christ being manifested there in the deliverance of that boy. So all of the problems we have in life are the workings of the devil. And all of those problems that were in this boy's life, they had disappeared by the end of the story. They're not there anymore, are they? So all the people and the disciples, all that they can see is no longer the scribes are off in the distance. This spirit is forever gone out of this boy. And all they can see is this glorious deliverance. And it says the majesty of God in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what's going on there. And I'll end with this. O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's a light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. And the chorus to that goes... Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Amen. Now let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, for the word that you've given us here. And I ask that you'll impress upon all of our hearts the glory and majesty and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the power and love that he has towards us. And he's willing to demonstrate for us and toward us if we'll just trust him, just put our dependence upon him. He wants to do that for us. And if we're struggling and we cry out to him, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief, he will. 
Thank you, Lord, for the revelation of your word and what you've given us and how that we can see you through your word, the kind of God that you are. And we thank you for that, Lord. And I thank you for being with us tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.